Academy. I'm Alex Bird. You may be used to the card in your wallet or the coins in your pocket, but there is a new form of currency making headlines. Bitcoin is described as a cryptocurrency existing outside of national frameworks and banks and acting as a tender for all sorts of exchange, legal and illegal. I'm back at the Oxford Internet Institute to talk to Vili Lodonverta. He's a research fellow here and an expert on Bitcoin. In the second of this two-part series, he'll be talking about the political and philosophical implications of private currencies and what it can teach existing systems. We started by discussing the immediate future of Bitcoin. So where do you see Bitcoin going from here? At present, it's, it's still it's, it's a niche technology adopted by a minority society who use it for various things. It's in the stage where personal computers were only used by the hardcore minority who found it interesting and were intrigued by it. But if it wants to grow, then surely it has to become more regulated and has to be able to integrate into existing currency. Or is that even what they want? Or do they want to keep it? They, there's not really kind of a, mm. a head of Bitcoin, that's the right. point, I guess, but what direction do you see it well, taking? Well, I think it's interesting first to talk about the intentions of uh, various people and communities who, who use Bitcoin. Like you said, there is no central authority. There are some sort of cyber libertarians who want to make Bitcoin independent of government authorities. So the state objective is to provide an alternative to national currencies. And so that relates to the anonymity also, that you wanted that to be anonymous so that uh, authorities can can track that. And, you know, my own opinion is that insofar as some people believe that, for example, tax uh, taxation is theft, I don't agree with that. So I think we need to have institutions, we need to have society that has some kind of ability to um, also tax its members. And because of the free rider problem in economics, taxes need to be collected coercively for us to be able to collect taxes at all. Could you just explain the free rider? Well, the, the problem is if you ask people to collectively contribute to a cause that they all benefit from, let's say healthcare or roads or national defense, then obviously everyone believes that these are important causes, but the problem is that, every, that the individual can free ride on the others by saying that, well, look, my contribution, my individual share is so small that even if I don't pay, you know, it's not going to impact the overall very much. But if everyone thinks this way, then we're going to have less of those services than we really need. So any, what are called public goods, any good where everyone gains the benefit and those who don't pay cannot be excluded from obtaining the benefit is going to be underproduced. It's going to be produced less than what we need it to be produced according to microeconomic theory. And this is basically a justification for collecting taxes and having taxes be mandatory, not something you can opt into or opt out of. But at the same time, this only what what I've just said is only valid in a democracy where tax money is used in an accountable manner and where tax money is really used on public goods and not for the private benefit of some interest groups, for example. There are, there are well-documented abuses of, well, tax money, but also of the government's power over national currency. So just to give you one example, the, well, we all know the 
the organization WikiLeaks, information leaks that were highly embarrassing to the US government and US authorities. However, it appeared that they had, had not done anything illegal, so they could not be charged. At least they were not charged initially for a very long time. I'm not actually sure if they, even now, if they have been charged. But certain US senators publicly boasted that they had used their connections, their political power, their leverage to force payment processors like Visa, MasterCard and PayPal to, to force these payment processors to stop serving WikiLeaks so that WikiLeaks could no longer conduct its business. It could no longer uh, receive donations, it could no longer receive payments or transact with people. And obviously, if you're going to exclude someone from the economy like this, that should only be a decision that can be done by, by a court, that it should be consequence of some kind of legal wrongdoing. So this was one very clear example where the state power over national currency was abused. And so the argument um, is that if we had this kind of private cryptocurrencies that are controlled by no one, they're only controlled by the algorithm, then we wouldn't have any abuse of power either. WikiLeaks now takes a lot of donations through Bitcoin. Right, so what, exactly. So what, big, big, but what WikiLeaks did was they moved on to Bitcoin. And so this seems to be a very legitimate use for Bitcoin, in my opinion. But so, of course, my concern then, then is that by you know removing, stripping governments of their power, and governments are meant to, meant to be institutions that we people have put together to facilitate collaboration and overcome problems like free riding and coordinate our economy to the benefit of everyone. If we strip governments of their power over the money system, then yes, we get rid of abuse, but then we also get rid of all the benefits, right? So we lose the baby with the bathwater. That's my view. So in my opinion, we should try to fix our governments and uh, keep national currency. But I don't know if, <laughs> if that is possible or not. For me, this kind of cryptocurrency, then that would be the last resort. Do you ever see Bitcoin going more mainstream, I guess, in terms of being a common use right. currency? Or is it going to be something like Bitcoin that isn't Bitcoin? Well, there, yeah, okay. Well, there's, there's two things, I think, that uh, limit Bitcoin's ability to become very mainstream. One is that despite these serious uh, abuses of the national currency system um, or national monetary system, the national monetary systems, they do still provide a lot of convenience for the ordinary consumer who is you know, not so concerned about sort of more philosophical ideals which are important, but then the ordinary consumer prioritizes their convenience. And still it's, you know, despite Bitcoin clients becoming easier to use and so on, it's still just more convenient, really. And there are people who disagree with me, but you know, my subjective assessment of the usability of these different payment systems is that it's just more convenient to use euros or pounds or dollars. If you receive your salary in that currency, it goes in your bank account. We have all this infrastructure built for those currencies. They're quite safe. If your bank account is hacked, 
it's the the bank who will compensate you so the risk is diffused if your bitcoin account is hacked your key stolen you lose everything and there, there is no recourse and there's probably very little that law enforcement can do either because authorities have been excluded from this system by design so there are i think these very practical reasons why ordinary consumers will find uh, it hard to transit well let's say they won't find many reasons uh, start using bitcoin instead of their national currency ordinary merchants also have few reasons well let's say they that they, they have incentives to use bitcoin because often the transaction costs the money that you have to pay for payment processors are very high in our national money monetary systems in the case of bitcoin that's not necessarily so although if you're going to then exchange your bitcoins back into uh, pounds to pay your rent for example then you're going to incur uh, transaction costs in that process so Bitcoin is not free to use either in that sense and then for merchants there's the problem of uh, currency risk so the value of Bitcoin fluctuates and changes quite a lot in one day so it's the same as if you're trading between currencies every time you accept the foreign currency you're assuming a degree of currency risk and that's not really a risk that merchants uh, want to bear so there are some disincentives also for merchants to start adopting this more widely there are some incentives as well unfortunately i tend to think that tax evasion tends to be the biggest incentive that is quite easy not to report taxes if you take payments in bitcoin that said i don't want to say that merchants who accept payments in bitcoin are tax uh, evaders because i think the, the great majority of them actually use um, as kind of systems which allow them to accept bitcoin but then exchange that into the national currency immediately so actually the only seeing thing that the, the merchant sees in their books is ordinary pounds or dollars given that this is the first widespread iteration of private cryptocurrencies i guess it follows that there would be some logistical problems and issues breaking through However, say that we all suddenly decided we wanted to abandon our notes and coins, could Bitcoin feasibly replace it? Because the money supply is uncontrollable by design, in order to, to prevent evil governments from printing money and, and causing hyperinflation, if you can't control money supply, then the value of money depends only on uh, demand. And so then there is this... Um, quite basic theory in, in macroeconomics the quantity theory of money which basically says that if uh, you have increasing use for money increasing demand for money but the amount of money doesn't grow then your prices are going to start falling so you're going to have deflation and deflation is seen as very bad for economic growth because it encourages hoarding instead of spending because what it means is if you have an amount of money have bit one bitcoin in your wallet today and you know it's going to be worth more tomorrow and even more next week because it's constantly deflating then you have an incentive to hold on to it for a little and not spend it immediately but because by doing that you're actually preventing usage from growing so it's a sort of self-defeating proposition that 
deflation prevents economic growth from happening and then you never really get a very big or significant rise in the value of the currency. So if if you think about what kind of deflation would be necessary if Bitcoin were to be uh, used in place of um, our national currencies, it's just astronomical. So let's say, you know, there are about 5,000 billion euros in circulation. And this is M1, so it's it's cash and overnight deposits. So let's say if we wanted to replace just 10% of that with Bitcoin, so 500 billion euros would be replaced by 11 million, or let's say 10 million for to make it easy to calculate this, 10 million Bitcoins, which is what we currently have. It means that each Bitcoin would have to stand in for 50,000 euros. Currently, each Bitcoin is worth, you know, something between 50 euros and 100 euros. If we say, you know, 100 euros, then that means that the value of Bitcoin would have to appreciate 49,000%. It means that the value of Bitcoin would have to double almost 10 times, I think, in order to reach that kind of value. And you can see that this kind of expectations are self-defeating. It's not going to be adopted very widely if people think that, you know, it has a potential that it's going to be, you know, that the, the, the value is going to grow 49,000%. I just better holding on to my money. Yeah, why, that's, why spend it today when you can buy twice as much tomorrow? Can't right. So, you know, I'm not saying it's not growing. The amount of Bitcoin use is growing. I just don't ever see it growing, you know, anywhere near to that kind of level that I'm, I'm talking about here. The economic forces are kind of stacked against. So with this in mind, how do you see Bitcoin being used or implemented in the future then? A type of use in, in which it might become more mainstream is that it could be used as a sort of intermediary to facilitate international money transfers. So it could be used so that, let's say I'm in the UK and I want to buy something uh, from America in dollars. Instead of buying dollars, which can be expensive because of lack of competition in, uh, in commercial banking and so on, what I could do is I could buy Bitcoin and then sell that Bitcoin for US dollars and then buy whatever good I wanted to. Basically this whole process would be packaged into a, a service so the consumer doesn't even see the Bitcoin. You don't even have to know that there's some Bitcoins mediating this transaction. UK and US are maybe not a very good example because it's very easy to do currency exchange and move money between these countries. But let's say Africa. Africa's economy is growing fast and also Africa's digital economy is growing. But yet the financial services sector there is not very developed. Most people are don't have a bank account or they're underbanked. They don't have access to financial services. So moving money to some, you know, random person in Africa for me is very difficult. So Bitcoin could help overcome this kind of hurdles, partly by cutting through uh, regulatory red tape. So it's a little bit unclear whether then that kind of money transfer services where you actually move money from country to country as Bitcoin, which is not regulated, whether then that would cause new problems like, you know, as we discussed 
earlier might facilitate uh, money laundering and, and, and so on. Um, but it might also be a way to rapidly offer financial services to people. But the point here is that people wouldn't really be using Bitcoin. They would be using their local currency. They wouldn't even see Bitcoin. Bitcoin access is sort of intermediary. And no one, but in this use, no one really holds uh, Bitcoin. Uh, so it's not something that we do our uh, daily transactions. And then if I, if I trade locally, you know, I trade with you, I can use pounds. I'm not going to use Bitcoin. But when I trade internationally, I could use that as a sort of intermediate. So I think this kind of views may grow. And, um, as, a, as a platform, becomes yeah, a way of conducting business. Yeah, way of, yeah, a very specialized purpose for this kind of, for facilitating difficult transactions rather than something we use in our day-to-day transactions. Perhaps. Bitcoin marks an interesting development in currency. And as you said, it does contain some impressive ideas and aspects. Will this impact existing systems and kind of show changes that can be made? There's obviously a lot now that we can learn from Bitcoin that national currency systems um, and also, or should I, I should say monetary systems because it's a little bit wider concept than just currency, and also other digital currencies can learn from Bitcoin. So even if Bitcoin itself doesn't, you know, never becomes a huge mainstream hit, I'm sure it's going to en- continue to enjoy a level of popularity, unfortunately, especially in the sort of shadier corners of the internet. But not only there, I don't want to say that everyone who's Bitcoin is somehow shady. But even if Bitcoin is destined to remain a little bit limited in use, then it has still shown to us several things. One is the viability of a distributed cryptocurrency like this. No currency has done it to this extent before. So instead of having a central ledger, you have this distributed ledger. And so now another cryptocurrency could come and find a way to fix or at least address some of the shortcomings and become even more popular. And in fact, there are already many other cryptocurrency projects in motion as a result. So Bitcoin is not the, will not be the last. There are also some projects which aim to implement kinds of money transfer that I was just talking about, where they use... Bitcoin or something similar to Bitcoin to facilitate cross-border transfer and then have these sort of local communities use their local currency. So there are projects in motion already. But now what we could also do is learn how to improve national currency. And I think that's not happening, at least to a sufficient degree. I mean, there's a lot of financial technology innovation going on. There's even a sort of community in London because UK is a, is a finance hub. So there, there are technologists in, in London and around the UK who are coming up with innovations in financial technology, but they're not being adapted and adopted in the sort of mainstream financial industry, at least not the pace that we are used to seeing in internet innovation. There's all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, there's because these, these are huge systems and legacy systems, and they also have lots of regulations to follow and so on. So there's good reasons for that. There's also bad reasons like lack of competition in the sector. But some concrete learnings that we could take from Bitcoin is that Bitcoin provides a very easy way for software innovators to integrate money-related features into their software. So it provides a very easy API, a very easy programming interface for anyone to create software that deals with money, does things like sense money, 
receives money, uh, manages account balances. So it's a platform in the same way that you know iPhone has, um, Apple has created a, a, a platform with iPhone and iOS that makes it very easy for developers to reach millions of people and reach their pockets and in the sense of the phone being there but also in the sense of the wallet being in there. So iPhone ecosystem has been a huge success. So in the same way Bitcoin creates a kind of platform which is very easy for uh, programmers to use to develop software. Now if you contrast this with the our national monetary systems, integrating money related features into a software it's a huge pain because you have to deal with these payment processors and companies like PayPal. We usually we're talking about American companies that take a very uh, big cut. Transaction fees are high, the technology is outdated and it's very bureaucratic and slow. And many features are not even available. There is no way for you to query an account balance, for example, from software. There's good privacy reasons for that, but there's also with today's technology should be doable. So improving money as a platform for software innovation is something that we should learn from Bitcoin. If you missed the first part of this series on Bitcoin, then it can still be found on our website at www.podacademy.org and by searching for Podacademy on iTunes. There are also podcasts about the links between genius and madness and a discussion on the background of the ongoing Turkish protests. You can also find out all the latest by following us on Twitter at Pod Academy. Thanks for listening.